0: the cnbc app global market news in one place customizable sections and personalized alerts stocks tracking interactive charts and market insights all in your hands stay connected stay informed download the cnbc app today hello and welcome to this tuesday edition of squawk box here are your headlines today U.S. stocks continue their recent rally with the Dow closing above its 200-day moving average for the first time since April as investors shrug off weak economic data out of China. Disney shares jump as Daniel Loeb's third point takes a stake with the hedge fund investor calling for a spin-off of ESPN and a
1: shake-up in the boardroom. BHP reports its best profit in 11 years boosted by spiking commodity prices and intimates it could go back to Oz Minerals with an improved bid. And Germany's government slaps a new levy on gas prices for households and businesses, with Economy and Energy Minister Robert Habeck pointing the finger of blame squarely at the Kremlin.
2: All
1: measures, and this is undisputed, have a price. All measures have consequences, and some of them are also in positions. But they lead to us being less susceptible to blackmail, and thus being able to decide on our energy supply, independently of Russia. Good morning and a very warm welcome to the Tuesday edition of Squawk Box. Let's kick off the show with a look at U.S. markets, which closed in the green yesterday. All three of the majors ended up with a positive session. The Dow Jones and the S&P 500 each gaining about four-tenths of a percent apiece. Within the S&P 500, we had consumer staples lead the gains. On the downside, energy was the key laggard yesterday. The sector lost about two percent. We saw a pullback in the price of oil yesterday. Some concerns around China growth. We had disappointing Chinese data in the overnight session yesterday, providing somewhat of a negative backdrop there. In terms of technology stocks, the Nasdaq Composite gained about 0.6%, so outsized demand there. In terms of U.S. data yesterday, we did get some disappointing points. The Empire State Survey, the NAHB Housing Market Survey, cast a little bit of a shadow over sentiment. But ultimately, we did see investors put a little bit more money to work in the market. In terms of fixed income, here's how Treasuries ended the session. U.S. 10-year note trading around 2.78%. That inversion remains remains in place. The U.S. 2-year Treasury note trading with a yield of about 3.18%. The dollar yesterday rose about 0.9%. This morning, we are seeing the gains continue. So sterling trading on the back foot versus the greenback. The euro also trading a touch lower, but really a a little bit of stabilization after the move higher in the dollar index yesterday. Now, on to oil. I mentioned the pullback we saw in the energy sector in stock markets in the U.S. yesterday. We saw Brent drop about 3% yesterday, and it seems to be the case that a lot of it came on demand concerns after that somewhat gloomy Chinese data out in the previous session. This morning, the losses do continue. WTI down about six tenths of a percent to now trading under $90 a barrel. Brent is down about 0.9% to $94 a barrel. And Asian markets right now are trading higher. We've got the Shanghai Composite up about a quarter of a percent. The Nikkei 225 trading a touch higher, a touch above the flat line. Hang Seng teetering right around the flat line. So fairly stable to positive session in Asia. Karen.
0: Let's talk about a big corporate story. Daniel Loeb's third point has taken a new stake in Disney and is pushing for the entertainment giant to spin off its sports network ESPN. According to a letter to Disney CEO Bob Jepic, and obtained by CNBC's David Faber, Loeb said a spin-off of its ESPN business would generate significant free cash flow. He also urged the company to integrate the streaming service Hulu into its Disney Plus direct-to-consumer platform. Of course, uh, the question is if you want to uh, sell a business, who is the ready buyer? And you'd think that ESPN, with the deep needs as we talk about here, having a, such a, a wide offering in sports, it would need someone with very deep pockets and uh, perhaps a player of size similar to Disney. So as we talk about uh, a ready buyer, how many of them would be too if you want competitive tension to get the best possible price. <laughs> so you know, that is a huge one to try and deal with and what a slam dunk that uh, Daniel Loeb would be looking for.
1: Absolutely. This isn't the first time though that ESPN has been floated by investors, by analysts as an option for Disney. But I think your question about who would be the buyer is interesting. We know that uh, a ton of the streamers are considering different bundles. And I think long term, the question remains, will we move toward bundle packages more broadly? Is that the way forward for streaming? Right now there's just a ton of uncertainty about what the future is going to look like for these streaming giants. As we know,
0: there have been other players, newer players, that uh, would like to consider themselves sports broadcasters, but it does require significant expertise to be in that area. Uh, And this is uh, a network, as we talk about, it has National Football League, National Basketball Association, and the Major League Baseball all very big business in the United States and of course that comes with advertisers too so very interesting model so we shall see what happens there the other point too is around Hulu and don't forget Disney owns 67 percent of Hulu Comcast the owner of this network owns 33 percent Lobo also pushing for a resolution there now I think what you've got now is some sort of clean up consolidation of ownership structures as we enter a very difficult period. And what jumps out to me is the advertising side. I mean, you've seen a whole bunch of uh, various players across the board trying to tap in to the ad model because it's very expensive business uh, producing content and just having subscribers is clearly not enough for some of these businesses. Uh, We just saw this uh, interesting deal overnight for Walmart to team up with Paramount uh, to effectively bring the content into the business model and have some sort of package that is uh, a rival to Amazon Prime. But everybody's going after Mm. the advertising space all at the point in the economic cycle where we turn down, where traditionally advertisers spend less. So, it's an interesting period of time. Well, it's
1: interesting to think about the advertising supported models as something that the companies want to do because they want to improve their revenue stream. It's also fairly defensive, a way for the companies to hedge a little bit. If we are looking at a downturn in the economy, then will people necessarily hold on to their subscription services? So, you've got the ad side of things, which to your point, advertisers in a recessionary environment don't necessarily have the money to spend. But on the other hand, in a recessionary environment, consumers don't necessarily have the money to spend. So it feels like this is a little bit of a hedge. Just on that point, it does feel as though Walmart has uncovered
0: something here. I mean, why team up with Paramount? Why have a bundled service for its grocery business? And does it think that one of the barriers to entry here is that people are not severing their ties with Amazon? Because they do have this bundle going into recession. They've got two, uh, or in, in some cases even more than that, uh, tied up in, into this package. So that is really interesting thought process here, isn't it? And to have Walmart being such a big player retailer mm-hmm. going after to Paramount, does it bolster the chances of
1: Paramount too in the streaming industry
0: just as it's becoming
1: more competitive? From Walmart's perspective, it seems like this is perhaps a play to try to make their subscribers stickier and that they're trying to boost their own Walmart Plus service and perhaps. If people are locked in from a streaming perspective, that will make them stickier overall. Just coming back to Disney, um, I was surprised to read this news yesterday, given that the Disney earnings that just came out were really blowout earnings. It was a huge, hugely successful quarter. The theme parks are doing well. They blew it out of the water in terms of subscribers. Not always the time that you'd expect to see an activist investor turn up.
0: I felt it was a very here and now report card that things might be getting a bit tougher, and even in terms of pushing out some of the profitability targets and subscriber numbers, I think for for me it was telling us that this is great and people are coming back and there's revenge spending and people want experiences so they're going back into the parks and, and the Disney Plus business is okay. But I think that there are headwinds. And if you talk about the content spending, the trends are against spending big time on content now just to acquire customers, to acquire those subscribers. And they already shaved a billion dollars off their spending plans in recent mm-hmm. times. That still seemed like a huge amount of money, more than $30 billion to spend this year. So I do still wonder whether there is a target there, whether they can spend a little bit less which of course as we talk about profitability of the service you spend less and you can still make money, uh, Mm. then profitability
1: starts to look a little bit better, doesn't it? Well, it's one of the other points of Daniel Lowe looking at cost-cutting at Disney. Well, we'll leave that conversation there. We're going to pick up um, talking about Walmart in even more detail later in the program, so do stay tuned if that's of interest to you. Uh, New 13F filings are showing how top money managers are positioning. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway ramped up its stake in Apple again in the second quarter, its biggest stock holding by far, adding nearly 4 million more shares. Berkshire also continued to boost its stake in oil producers Chevron and Occidental Petroleum, as well as video gaming company Activision Blizzard. Meanwhile, it closed its $70 million position in Verizon and trimmed holdings of General Motors, U.S. Bancorp and Kroger. Elsewhere, Chase Coleman's Tiger Global cut its top holding in JD.com by 37 percent to still $1.97 billion, but added a new $241 million position in Alphabet. David Topper's Appaloosa, meanwhile, trimmed its Alphabet holding by 16%, while Michael Burry of The Big Short sold out of all 11 of his equity positions last quarter. Activist hedge
0: fund Elliott Management exited its entire equity stake in Twitter last quarter. According to a securities filing, Elliott sold all 10 million shares in the social media company, worth $387 million at the end of March. And of course, uh, this is interesting timing as we talk about the Twitter play from Elon Musk. Now, Elliott Management also reportedly soured on its SoftBank holdings, dumping nearly all of its $2.5 billion position in the company, according to sources speaking with the Financial Times times. And the question is whether that happened before that uh, fairly sizable loss that we had uh, reported on the other day. And let's take a look at U.S. futures and what we're seeing at this stage. We've got a little bit of red on the boards indicating a slight softening of the trade, a little bit more caution ahead of that Wall Street session. Let's get some thoughts on the markets and positioning with Manish Singh, who is Chief Investment Officer at Crossbridge Capital. Manish, nice to see you back on the show. Can I ask right. you about some of this positioning? Because we've been hearing for a number of weeks that those Tiger Cubs that were heavily invested in the big technology names had just lost a huge amount of money, didn't see the downside here, had just still been playing the upside. On the other side of the coin, we're hearing that Uh, The opportunities we're seeing on market has meant that Warren Buffett is going after Apple even more. How do we think about technology as an opportunity here?
2: Uh, Morning, I would say that, you know, the technology as an opportunity still exists. And you're right in saying that, you know, some people are being proven wrong in cutting their position, as you have seen with uh, Tiger Global in in, in Q2. And Apple, look at the Apple stock itself, it is up 30 percent since uh, its June lows. And, and if you look at the breadth of the thrust, what we call in the S&P 500 index, uh, you have had a, a new high in advanced decline line, uh, despite the index still being down uh, 13% or over 10%, it takes another 12, 13% rally for it to get to a new high level. That just shows you that the price catch up is still due to happen or still about to happen. But the key driver, as, as you know, is fed and fed pivot is what is being priced now whether we get a fed pivot or now or not or not is for for us to let let uh, see what happens in the future but the inflation number or the inflation number coming down has been encouraging and it makes me believe that you will see at some point in the future and the market feels reasonably happy with that given the levels that we are at
0: Manish we've still got skittish sentiment. I mean the market one day is talking about whether we've got the 75 basis points or whether it's 50, whether we've got a power pivot or also whether we do have a pivot and doesn't make any difference because we're still looking at an economic downturn here that's unavoidable by central banks. How do you tackle the growth concerns out there in the market? Uh, Sentiment remains very much split between those that want to get back in the markets at this stage and those that think that there's still danger signals
2: so i would say that you know i mean one has to have of course one has to have an investment horizon in mind for me it is always um, not the short term but the medium term and when i look at medium term and i look at people are seem to be concerned about 1970s but they just forget that in 1970s, the debt-to-GDP used to be 35 to 40%. It's over 100% now. There's no way US economy can sustain a very high interest rate. So when Chairman Powell made this comment about we are at neutral rate at his last FOMC meeting, I felt very comfortable. I think that we are at neutral rates. Of course, you, you can veer away from neutral rates slightly for a short term, but to me, there is no way the US economy can sustain uh, a fed interest rate beyond two two point two five two and a half percent for long term simply because there's natural cap you you have too much of debt, you cannot be paying high enough and not bankrupting yourself so for me, that gives a comfort that Fed will be mindful of that, and the economy is not doing as bad as, as you can see. I think that the economy is doing okay uh, i i don't I'm not in I'm going to say whether we 'll have a recession or not, but on on balance, I see where the price levels are. I see this rally continuing.
1: Manish, you sound relatively upbeat, um, certainly relative to many others that we speak to. Uh, in terms of the earnings front, why do you argue that 2023 earnings expectations could or sh- even should be rising at this point? What gives you that confidence?
2: Sure. I, I think, again, it comes down to sentiments. I think the sentiments is extremely beaten down. And I have seen this over the last few months in discussion with uh, my, my colleagues and, and peer groups uh, that I see. I, I I didn't see many people talking bullish. Everyone was too concerned about uh, uh, the Fed. Inter- everyone was, is talking about Fed interest rate, Fed is going to increase this rate, that rate. And that was putting everyone back off because the moment you price in your model, the Fed rate is going to be at 5%. Of course, you're going to be bearish and you're going to bring down all the earnings estimates. That is not my case scenario. As I mentioned, I just don't think that US economy can sustain a Fed rate at a very high level without breaking itself. And I don't think the Fed's mandate is to structurally destroy the US economy. I think they have their mandate to save uh, and to preserve U.S. economy in a way even if they don't admit it so i think if the interest rates were to go much higher and stay higher it will do more damage than good and as chairman powell himself has said that will do nothing to bring down the price of oil or price of food so i think the fed is very clear in its thinking of course it doesn't it Fed's mandate is to fight inflation it'll never come back and say we're not going to raise rates because they don't do that but if you have to just draw the conclusion that economy cannot sustain higher rate fed cannot keep increasing rates the price levels are reasonable and therefore you have to be a buyer
1: uh, Manish, just coming back to the r- most recent data, uh, we got yesterday some relatively disappointing Empire State Survey data. Um, State. The NHB mm-hmm. housing market index was a little bit uh, on the light side. And, of course, the consumer um, confidence data that we got last week was a little bit better than expected. What is your read on the health of the U.S. consumer specifically?
2: I would say that they are... They would. I would say they are okay, I wouldn't say that they are in good shape because of course they have used up a lot of the savings, you know, which they had from COVID times. Uh, but if we see uh, that the financial conditions don't worsen much and the US economy still has to pass through the or feel the effect of the two rate rise, the big rate rise that we have seen. Uh, then I think the U.S. consumer will be in 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 a in not a very good shape, but I, I don't expect it to be a very bad shape. But remember, Juliana, uh, equity market is is about relative basis. It's it's not about on absolute terms, which is why at eight and a half percent CPI inflation, you saw the market rallying, now, and in March at eight and a half percent CPI inflation, you saw market cratering because it's all about the direction and sentiment. And I think that sentiment is positive for the market. And the price level is very comfortable. And people are seeing that the worst of hikes are through. Uh, Fed is not going to be ideological. It shouldn't be ideological. And that gives me comfort to buy. And, and I would expect that the uh, analysts who have brought down their earnings are going to start revising it once these uh, over next two or three months when they take these things into account.
0: Manish, can I ask you about some of the other trades, The foreign exchange market, we've traveled a long way on treasuries this year, the dollar as well, supported by some of those yields. How are you thinking about uh, those particular assets?
2: So dollar, dollar in my opinion uh, will continue to remain strong. I'm not saying it's going to go much stronger, but again, FX is a two-way, two-way, two sides, as you know. And if you compare to euro, I mean, euro seems to be in a dire state given what's happening in the in the European economy. However, I will caution that there's a lot of doom and gloom about the European economy. The energy storage in Germany is not as bad as we are seeing from reports coming out that the energy storage is at 75% and they they keep increasing it so the winter may not be as as uh, as uh, destructive as some people are pricing in so you might have a bit of a surprise but i just don't see how ecb can continue raising rates i think they are just doing it now because the headline numbers are 9 and 10 but it does not help the economy because the economy does not have growth so why are you raising rates and uh, the inflation is has, uh, raising rates is not going to do anything about inflation. As we know, the one caused by energy and caused by food. So if, ECB stops raising rates, then again, that's bad for Euro, uh, vis-a-vis if the U S stops uh, raising rates. So I do not see how Euro can get stronger and U S dollar will continue to be stronger where I think you will have an impact is emerging market. Currencies may do better. Once everyone starts pricing in that Fed is not going to increase rates a lot more.
0: Manish, to appreciate the comments today. Thank you very much for joining us Thank and managing Singh with coming. us, Chief Investment Officer Crossbridge Capital. Uh, just a quick note to audience, uh, Goldman Sachs sees the path narrowing for the Federal Reserve to bring down inflation without causing a recession. You can check out that story online at
1: cnbc.com. Coming up on the show, BHP shares rise after its second biggest profit ever. We'll break down the numbers next. And for more on the Disney dilemma,
0: the uh, dilemma facing executives after Daniel Loeb disclosed his stake in the group, you can check out the scorebox podcast. London's Heathrow Airport has extended limits on the number of departing passengers through to late October. The 100,000 passenger a day cap was set to expire on the 11th of September. But the airport says it will remain in place until at least the 29th of October to prevent overwhelming ground crews amid staff shortages. Heathrow says the cap has led to improved punctuality, reliability and bag wait times. And of course, uh, that takes us through to the next half term when it comes to school holidays
1: as well. So <laughs> I'm not sure if you had any plans to travel uh, through Heathrow. Well, I've tried to avoid it. The The, the pictures <laughs> are just so off-putting. Um, that I've tried to avoid it. I am going traveling, but I'm not flying from Heathrow. What about you?
0: Well, yeah, report cards are that it seems to be over OK, busy, yeah. but OK. But same thing, I'm d- desperately just trying to avoid it and coming up with all other <laughs> alternative <laughs> travel plans at this point. And you know, Heathrow used to be my main gateway yeah. to No, to Now the, the,
1: the train is a more attractive option than ever before to exactly. me. Not much cheaper. In, in no. fact, it was the same
0: price, really, isn't no. it, which is extraordinary.
1: <laughs> and you do many trips to Paris that you probably otherwise wouldn't have done. Right. <laughs> Never <laughs> a downside.
0: Authentic Brands Group is reportedly in talks to buy Ted Baker in a 200 million pound deal. That's according to uh, Sky News, which says the U.S. consumer goods giant is offering 110 pence per share for the British retailer, almost a third lower than its previous offer in May. Authentic Brands, which owns Reebok, is reportedly attracted to Ted Baker's international potential. The deal would become its most prominent British takeover to date. Darktrace shares soared after confirming it's an early takeover talks with tech investment firm Tomabrava. Tom Bravo has until the 12th of September to make an offer or walk away from the British
1: cybersecurity company. Shares of BHP soared after the world's biggest miner by market cap posted its second biggest profit in history on surging commodity prices as well as a record dividend and did not rule out a revised bid for Oz Minerals. BHP shares are trading nearly 5% higher. Will Kaloris joins us now with more on these numbers. Good morning, Will.
3: Good morning, Jules. Yeah, it was a pretty strong result coming through for BHP. And investors are obviously cheering the fact that the dividend beat on expectations coming in at 3.25 dollars 25 a share, 77% payout ratio, which is well above or around about $0.60 cents above where their minimum guidance is. But the question does remain what comes next. For BHP because you look at these sets of numbers you look at that second best profit result that they have seen in their history you have to go back to 2011 to see a better set of numbers you look at the underlying EBITDA you look at the revenue of around about 65 billion that they have brought in a lot of this was to do with the exceptional commodity price conditions that they did experience throughout the course of FY22 and what we've seen even just over the course of the last few months is those prices coming off and coming off considerably and this is basically what BHP CEO Mike Henry was getting at. The fact that you are seeing these commodity prices weaken even though there's stability in China in terms of the commodity demand, you are seeing all of these global macroeconomic factors that could potentially play through. So investors maybe shouldn't expect such a stellar set of numbers coming through for the next year. And another thing that was mentioned a little bit earlier was that Oz Minerals bid. Now, this is all that $6 billion or so dollar bid that BHP did lob for the copper miner, around about $25 a share, that was rebuffed. Mike Henry, yet again today, was suggesting that there could still be another bid in a sense, but he doesn't necessarily need Oz Minerals. But the investors into BHP were asking him consistently what is next for the growth plans then for BHP without such a move because they're basically sitting at a break even position when it does come to their net cash. They've got all of this money sitting there in the bank ready to go when it does come to moving forward on growth. They did announce around about 400 million in extra exploration, but with commodity prices where they are, with the expectation coming through for investors that they wanna see these big returns coming by the way of dividends coming by the way of future growth now that they've spun off that petroleum division the next big thing for BHP really is going to be where they do find that growth whether it's via their potash division whether it's via the extra capex that they're looking to be spending over the long term up to around about 10 billion or which a lot of analysts even the ones we've spoken to today are suggesting that perhaps not 25 a share for oz minerals this is australian dollars of course but perhaps 30 perhaps 32 and a half and that will be enough to get it over the line. And in fact, Karen, one that we just spoke to, Jonathan Barrett over at Celsius Pro, he's saying he's fine. If they go 32, if they go 35, he'll be fine with paying over the odds because of the copper story moving forward. But you just have to remember what we saw from BHP when they bought up all those shale assets that sometimes paying over the top doesn't pay dividends in the long run.
0: Jonathan Barrett has been covering that stock for many, many years, so interesting comments there, Will. Can I ask <laughs> you a little bit deeper, though, because I think that uh, the company's walking this very fine line saying it wants to invest in the future, but it doesn't want to spook investors because we've just been through this huge phase of balance sheet rationalisation, uh, a dramatic phase, really, for the mining sector, but if we think about the comments we heard from the oil sector just this week from Saudi Aramco saying that there was a real lack of investment in the future because of all his concerns around uh, energy transition. short-term mentality. Are there concerns that we're not investing enough in commodities more broadly for the future? Were those questions tackled by uh, BHP today?
3: Yeah, and, and this is the thing, because they've got this emphasis when it does come to the future facing quantities, we all know this. And basically Mike Henry was trying to suggest in a sense that you don't necessarily need MA, that there are other growth levers, but a lot of analysts are questioning what exactly are those growth levers moving forward for BHP, because they can go via the the expo route where they're looking for new developments, they could perhaps scoop up a number of smaller miners, particularly in Australia, that align with some of the projects that they are building out. But realistically, aside from that Jansen Potash pro- project that you know all about, Karen, there really isn't, unless they do engage in some pretty significant MA, any kind of further growth prospects, unless they can, I don't know, maybe perhaps fix up all of the issues that they're having currently when it does come to Olympic Dam and just the derisory amount of copper they're able to pull out of that project. So that's the real question because now when they've spun off those woodside assets the petroleum assets they've lost their cost curve control so they need something in order to really drive the growth moving forward otherwise you're overly dependent on the pricing of the iron ore which we know is in the doldrums at the moment and you're just betting on i suppose escondida and olympic dam in terms of that copper production which is obviously why they're looking to the likes of an oz minerals or potentially another major copper miner i've heard freeport mcmarine getting thrown into the mix at the same time in order to have something, and even with that balance sheet rationalisation, they've really got to do something with that money. Otherwise, it's just going to be handing it all back to investors. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
0: Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cupmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.